And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. And welcome. We are live from the bunker. Jason Hud here in the studio. A little rock and roll, get the blood pumping because it's Tuesday. And you know how Tuesdays are around here anyway. Traditionally, Tuesdays are our Monday. So far, since I've gotten married to Mrs. Boss, Tuesdays have not been as terrible. I don't know. I could be uh, I could be jinxing myself there. The chat is open for those of you who are watching live. We do have all the social media channels. Well, well a lot of the social media channels. You can also send us feedback by email, live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. And if you are partaking of this program after it's live, you can always leave a comment. I uh, saw the uh, Mandalorian Season 2 trailer dropped today. And, of course, you know, Kessel Run Transmission's already doing a little damage control backpedaling. But that's okay. They're being awful people. We don't need to be paying attention to them anyway. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. Although it could come up in conversation because uh, our guest has a little experience in some of that. And let's bring him in right now, Mr. Quincy Allen. Hola, como esta? Cross-genre author, handyman, motorcycle rider. I am. General raconteur. <laughs> provocateur. <laughs> uh, provocateur. At least I used to be. Are you still Are you still wearing kilts when you get out and do public appearances? For the most part, yes. <laughs> um, I am not as draconian about that standard as I once was. Um, you know, although I, I haven't been to his shows as much, but I still like to wear the kilt. Uh, actually, although I will say this in Colorado, it was easier to just kind of go out and wear them because it, the temperatures were a little cooler mm-hmm. here in North Carolina, especially about what eight, nine months out of the year, it's hot and humid. So kilts while breezy actually are, they're heavy and they're hot. <laughs> I mean, like sitting down in the kilt was like wearing a canvas sack. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> excuse me, not, not quite as much as, as I once did. <clears throat> now, how many motorcycles have you got in your collection right now? Uh, so, uh, Vicky and I each have two rides. Um, it's funny. So I've been riding for 30 years, uh, and I've owned over the years six or seven bikes. I'd have to count through them, but. Um, I only have the two right now. I have my FJR, which it's an 04. I bought new. I will never get rid of that bike. Um, hopefully I will never have to. Um, it's got almost 50,000 miles. I call it Rocinante. It's on even on the license plate. Um, it's for anybody who rides motorcycles. It's the best all around bike I've ever ridden. Um, it does everything exceptionally well. We're getting ready to go on a, a motorcycle tour here actually, um, shortly. Uh, tomorrow, I think we leave. So I also have a Moto Guzzi Adache, which is sort of their California cruiser um, for chassis. Right. The Adache's got sort of more modern design cues. It's a beautiful bike. I mean, it, it's I love that thing. And that's when I put the leather with, I've actually put 
a leather tank cover on it with um, uh, spikes and stuff on it. It looks great. And I'm going to do the same thing on the rear fender as well. So now that's uh, that's leather work that you do yourself because that's that's another yeah. one of those hats that you wear. Correct. Yeah. So um, I take actually literally it's it's rawhide. It's tanned leather, but just plain. Cut it to fit it, um, and then I, I do whatever sewing is necessary. Put in the, the, the studs or spikes in this case. Uh, dye it myself. That piece of leather actually um, came completely smooth, and I ordered. There's a company in I think they're in like Czechoslovakia somewhere. They actually make uh, a dragon scale stamp, um, so a leather stamp, right? So you, you bang it and you, you emboss the leather. The first one I got only had a single dragon scale scale so one at a time i covered the space and it's about at the top of it it's about i don't know well the, the two strips are about an inch and a half wide the body of it is about eight inches wide and then the tank is about i don't know 12 inches long and so and the dragon stamp is about three eighths of an inch long mm. so i literally covered the whole thing with it looks great right. especially and it's sort of this ox blood red uh, but yeah, it's painstaking work. I actually ordered a second one that has four dragon scales on it rather than just the one, cause I'm going to do more work. Vicky wants a little boot thing. I'm going to do the tails. So, so, so I love leather. So the, <clears throat> as you, as you describe yourself as a cross genre author, uh, yeah. it, and, and talking about the leather work and talking about the motorcycles, I, I ran across, there's a, there's a Harley Davidson dealership here in the Kansas city area. Mm -hmm. That is getting ready to switch over to become a motorsports dealership because of the change in the policies at Harley. And it has me in, in thinking because that decision there, we're not going to be an exclusive Harley dealership anymore. We're now going to be, you know, ATVs and other other model bikes and, and that sort of thing. It kind of put me in mind of how the the direct market comic book shops have had to adapt and adjust, you know, not, not just selling comic books, but also Funko pops and games and cards and, and that sort of thing. And this, this idea of diversifying your product, diversifying the brand as it were kind of, kind of is along the lines of how you sort of market yourself as, as cause I, I haven't heard very many people say, I'm a cross genre author. I, I'm, you know, you've got science fiction authors, you've got fantasy authors, you've yep. got, you know, that, or they just say genre author or speculative fiction. How are you defining cross genre and why, why is that your descriptor? Where, where, how did you come about deciding on that? Uh, well, part of it, uh, when I got into this, so 2009, I, I got the Mohawk. I got laid off. I got the Mohawk. I decided to become a writer. All right. Um, but I wanted to, I knew that because I was starting at a late age, I kind of had to find ways to differ from everybody who's been established and certainly the younger folks. And I also knew that I didn't want to get stuck. Stuck is maybe not the right word. I didn't want to be, um, I'll use the word relegated to writing a single genre because I've always, I've read multiple genres. I love multiple genres. And for me, there's just sort of this, this delight in not only delving into either fantasy or sci-fi, but mixing them. Um, so I, I, I don't know if you've ever read it, but uh, do you, uh, are you familiar with Julian May's The Many Colored Land? 
I've heard of it. Okay. It is my favorite sci-fi. It's actually my favorite cross-genre series of all time. Mm -hmm. It's categorized as science fiction, but if you look at the covers, it looks pure fantasy. The premise is that in about 200 years from now, there's, there's this galactic milieu. Humanity has uh, discovered that there's other races out there. We have psychic powers. And then there's this gateway that has opened up to 6,000, or sorry, 6 million years in our past. And it only opens up, it's the, uh, in the Pleistocene epoch in basically the lower valley of uh, lower Rhone Valley. And what happens is the recidivists and people who can't adapt to this new milieu use it. It's an escape valve. Right. Right. And they, they, they call it exile. And so what happens is when these people go back, they discover something back there that nobody knew existed. The, what Julian May does is she combines facets of fantasy, science fiction, because there is this mixture between magic, basically, and technology that takes place over the course of the story, as well as she, she weaves into it sort of the origination of both the Celtic and Norse mythos mm-hmm. into this overarching story. It, it's, it's really, it's one of my favorites. Well, actually, it is my favorite series. Um, and that work left an impact. Um, not Most authors, and certainly the publishing industry, has, for business reasons, literally forced authors to pick a pony and ride it till they died. Um, and the reason I mentioned my haircut before is that I don't really like people telling me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, 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 there's a knee-jerk reflex. And so I think part of it might have been, in hindsight, it may not have been the best business decision in some respects, but that's beside the point. Um, because I've loved what I've written. I'm going to keep writing mixing and matching genres you know if you have old old west uh sci-fi throw in some paranormal if you have horror throw in some noir if you have sci-fi throw in some fantasy um i i think it makes i like to think and certainly for me when i'm writing in my head it makes things more interesting um and it also affords the author and the reader something that i'd like to think is hopefully a little bit different than the staple that's out there, right? right. There's, there's lots of pure on, uh, full-on steampunk. There's lots of full-on sci-fi, full-on fantasy. Uh, even things like full-on military sci-fi, right? But to mix them, it, it's something new. It's a new, it's a new uh, flavor to chew on. Well, like I, would Im- I would imagine it gives you an opportunity to twist the tropes a little bit too because, you know, the yeah. expectation is, oh, this is a steampunk book, but here's a wizard, you know, you, you well, just yeah, throw that so in there. Absolutely. The, the Blood War Chronicles, which you know, the, the people who've read it really seem to enjoy. I mean, the reviews are great. Just not enough people have read it. But that is, it's a clockwork gunslinger who actually ends up getting sucked into uh, this world with vampires, dragons, fae creatures. Um, and then ultimately, it's about a demon war. And, you know, that when I when I came up with that idea, I just thought, how cool would it be to have a part magical gunslinger having to these fantasy tropes, right? They are, and they are, they're tropes. But they're, they're, one of my favorite scenes that I wrote, and it's in book two, is when this gunslinger, who really doesn't know fantasy stuff exists, mm-hmm. sees a dragon for the first time and realizes it's an actual dragon. And that was just a fun scene to write, right? I mean, it was for me, it was because I grew up watching the West or watching Westerns. 
Um, and so you get those moments where it's something that, you know, normal, normal people can look at and actually, I, I like to think, share that wonder because we can identify with this notion of just somebody from the old West and that perspective. And that started with blood ties, which uh, is your first book. Now, when we talked to you at Worldcon 74 back in 2016, you had just gotten started with these. um, And the original plan then was three books. Yep. And now you're looking at six books. Yeah, published in three sets of two. How did how did that uh, morph into into what it is now? So it had excuse me. Originally, it was going to be three a three volume epic fantasy, for lack of a better phrase, right? Clockwork Gunslinger dropped into an epic fantasy story that deals with a demon war. When I wrote, when I was working on Blood Ties and stuff, the, the publisher, it was Wordfire Press back then. And it's actually, it's transitioned back to me, but um, it was decided because of its length, well, let's cut it in half, right? So you have two books instead of this great big one for, those were made for business reasons um, that I didn't necessarily agree with, but I at least respected because, you know, they're the publisher and that's what you do, right? Sure. It's in this business, right? They're doing the work. Okay, we'll do that. But my vision always was Blood Ties and Blood Curse, which are two books right now, to be a single volume. I mean, so here's the thing. and it, When you read Blood, and I've had people mention it, certainly back then when they read Blood Ties, it's a cliffhanger. It is, right? They literally go, the the, the premises, they need to go someplace, do, pick something up, and return home. Right. Well, one is they go someplace and pick it up, but that's it. I'm like, well, you know, what the hell? So, um, you know, and I, and I, my life being what it is, it took a little while to get two out and three out. But now that everything is kind of back in my, under my umbrella, the, I still am going to do the full six books because that's the story. And then I, I'll be able to release them a little more quickly. There's some business reasons for that, certainly on Amazon, right? You can get them out a little more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it compartmentalizes your editing efforts. Um, it does add three covers, which with the guy I use, who is awesome, Kirk DuPont's, he's great. Um, but, you know, it's, there's a chunk of change for his work. Yeah. So that increases that cost. But then I'd like to think I'll have the six books. I'll have the three volumes as a different purchase point. And ultimately, then I'll just have the six books as digital, uh, even though there's hard copy now. And then the volumes would be print for those people who really want it, right? Now, now are you are you doing all of this print on demand, just self-publishing, or is this going through a publisher at this point? It had gone through Wordfire. Um, I actually talked with a publisher about maybe picking them up, the three that are out right now. Um, but ultimately, the and, and the the publisher, he, he made a very good point, and I couldn't disagree with him because it's been out for a while it doesn't make sense for a publisher to pick up sort of what is already, I don't want to say a, a tired series, but it's already kind of it, it, that, that initial spike has been burned up. Sure. So now it's up to me. Right. So it is com- going to remain under my umbrella. Um, and that's so the other reason I want to actually write these new books for Chris Kennedy is to kind of regenerate some interest there with that fan base and hopefully port them back to um, the blood war stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm going to finish that series no matter what. Uh, and that gets finished before I'll tackle the sequels to Chemical Burn, which have always been in my head. But 
that was a standalone novel that had two mysteries added. Anyway, uh, but, but I want to do that. Yeah, it seems like indie publishing has not necessarily taken a life on its life of its own, but it seems like it has gained traction over the last few years. A lot more, uh, I see a lot more authors who are going that route. Um, I see a lot of comics creators that are doing that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I mean, Indiegogo and Kickstarter are both, uh, Indiegogo especially, blowing up with a lot of independent comic books and graphic novel projects. Uh, and they are making bank. And they're they're sitting there going, okay, well, we don't want to do it the mainstream traditional way anymore. One, because of the political gatekeeping and all of the neener, neener, neener behavior. But two, yeah. I want to own my own IP. I want to be in control of the property. I want to, I want to have, this is, this is mine. Instead of, you know, yeah, it'd be great to write Batman, but I don't own Batman. So, right. It, <laughs> is, is publishing going to go that same route, do you think, with, with traditional prose, you know, novels, novellas? Because short stories are fairly easy to do that way. Do you see novels happening in that, that paradigm? Uh, I think that we will see, and well, certainly the, the indie market, there are some all-stars. Mark Allen Adelheit is one of them um, in that these are guys, uh, there's, there's, there's a short list and most of them are involved. Mark isn't, but most of them are involved with, uh, what is it? 50 books. Uh, was it 20 books to 50 K I think is the title of the, it's a Facebook group, but there's this institution there. Kennedy's a member. Um, that is what I would call sort of a conglomeration of independent contractors in an industry who are defining uh, the business rules, processes, and etiquette to be successful. And essentially there is, there's, there's some general rules that if you follow them, you can be successful, but it requires the entrepreneurial, not only uh, spirit, but a specific set of skills that includes sales and marketing and IT. Um, I mean, you have to understand what keywords are and how to how to treat with them. Um, and it goes well beyond that, right? And then it becomes a full-time job. You are a, a business owner and you run your business. Uh, and the people who are well-suited to that can be very, very successful. And we're talking six, and in some cases, seven figures per annum. And there's, there is a, it's, I mean, it's becoming almost a philosophy in that regard. That has certainly uh, scooped up some of the publishing industry's revenues. And that's, you know, that's on top of the fact that brick and mortars have been in the steady decline for the past five or six years, ever since Amazon and and since digital came out. And then you stack on top of that, the fact that nobody's going to bookstores right now because of COVID there is more reason now than ever to if you have the skills and the acumen to become an independent author as opposed to pursuing the publishing sort of well we still call it mainstream publishing now having said that there's i'm not saying that i think people should do one or the other there are reasons why traditional publishing will i think always be a thing yeah i think people will for example there used to be speculation uh are are print books going to go away absolutely not there will always be print books because there's, I mean, there's a perfume that smells like new books. Print books are never going to go away. Right. 
there's something, nothing like a, a hardback, right? There's certain books that I still get in hardback because that I'm going to keep forever. That goes in my library. When I'm old and retired, I'm going to read that book. Well, plus with eBooks, I mean, the, the risk of piracy is a whole lot higher, I would think, because, you know, you, all you've got to do is crack that file or get some sort of a, of a download copy that somebody had, that somebody had, that somebody borrowed. And now suddenly you've got, um, you've got this, um, other copy of the thing out there. Yeah. And I think, re well, you recently had a, a battle yourself, I think last year with this outfit out of Canada, something called ebook bike, which apparently doesn't look like it's there anymore. Is that something that, you know, it, have, have you guys talked amongst yourself that this is a problem with ebooks in a, in a general sense, or does this just happen randomly? I, well, so here's the thing. Is it a problem with ebooks? The answer is, in a vacuum, the answer is yes. Um, but when you look at the mechanisms by which authors really sell books, which is either through bookshelves, people discovering them on a bookshelf, or through the ads and so forth, or, you know, the marketing channels or social media and their existing fan bases. What little, and, and there, there have been some, I, I won't say formal studies, but a number of us, and this includes like folks like John Mayberry and Salvatore, you know, uh, and a few others, Sanderson, um, Larry Correa. These are guys I've worked with, I know. We've talked about this and the, the consensus is that while yes, there is a trickle of quote unquote lost sales. The reality is that it does not impact revenue appreciably enough to be worth getting worked up over. For the most part, that's the case. Right. Um, so for, I mean, most authors I know, no, nobody puts DRM on it anymore, really. Um, that's a digital rights management that you can, when you're uploading to Amazon, you can turn it on and then it keeps people from sharing it. Nobody does that. Because I think, and, and in a lot of authors, especially on the indie side now, they are on the digital side, literally giving book one away. Once they have three volumes out, you give book one away because the first one's free. I mean, you know, it's, it's the old drug dealer mentality, right? Take the first sure. one because if you like it. And so it, it, there isn't, to a lesser extent, there isn't that uh, mercenary notion about it. It's here, try my stuff, please. If you like it enough, I'd be happy to sell you books two and three. I think digital management, digital, the digital age has made establishing that relationship that much easier mm -hmm. has actually gotten, and here's the beauty of it. And this is something I say, even at the conventions, this is the, the it really is, despite everything going on in the world, sort of the golden age of, um, non-mainstream fiction. And by that, I mean, it used to be that the big five, big six, actually it's now big five, soon to be probably big four publishers. There was fantasy and it was in a box and that's all you could get. And there was sci-fi and it was in a box. And there was a short list of individuals, primarily in New York who dictated right on down the stream, what that meant, what it was going to be and who got to play. Yeah. Right. Again, so Mohawk, that kind of makes me mad. Um, and what digital publishing, and even, and I, I hate to say it, you know, it's the, it's the great evil beast, Amazon, 
particularly with the Kindle Unlimited, what they've done is they have enabled every writer's appetite to write a story to meet up with every reader's appetite to read a story. There is literally everything, every mixture of genres, every everything you could possibly imagine and stuff you can't imagine is out there. And, and it affords, so here's the thing, like you look at the, the list of the anthologies I'm in, most of those never would have been produced in a non-digital age. And some of those I'm really rather proud of. My story in Alien Days, which is up on the screen, um, I believe that's the one that's about uh, explorers who go to another world, another star system, and they discover that there's one dominant species of life that actually happens to be these tardigrades. And the tardigrades, some of them are like human size. And then there's, the, I believe it's called Ambassador T is the name of the story. So there's things that never would have been, never would have found a home out in the world. Right were it not for the ease with which people can produce an anthology and get a story out there. Uh, and then you have, I mean, you know, you actually have the, well, the broad spectrum of subject matter on Amazon. I won't go too much into detail there, but you, everything is available. If you have an appetite for it, it exists on Amazon up to a point. And I think that's marvelous too. I think that there was a lot, there were a lot of voices, authors' voices, even not to tread too heavily on this, but even to a certain extent, cultural voices that were squelched by mainstream publishing. And we have seen that change fundamentally, literally in the past five years. Right. It's all out there and, and everybody's, everybody can find a hero. I, I you know, I, I remember the, the, there was a good deal of hoopla about sort of Black Panther and, and, and everything with that film and, and what it did. What I remember most is after that came out. So I've been doing the con since 2009. And the conventions, the circuit was primarily um, a certain group of individuals, primarily. And as things like Black Panther came out, what I started seeing was a change in the makeup of the kids that were attending and the delight on those kids' faces as I watched this evolve made it perfectly clear how valuable that was. Yeah. Um, it was It was really more, because I had a front row seat, right? It was cool. And it, and it came to me, there's this notion of every kid deserves a hero. And I, I really believe that, right? It, it's, 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 why, it's why Amazon and other digital platforms have, I think, helped give that notion, right? to give people more to read that they can more closely embrace, right? It's cool, yeah. I think. Uh, Sci-Fi Snob in the chat says, this sounds like chaos. Writers writing whatever they want, it's madness. <laughs> <laughs> but he does ask, and, and you mentioned a number of anthologies that you're in, and if, if somebody is looking for the first Quincy Allen story to read... What would you recommend for someone to be a starting point to find your work? Um, if we're going to do short fiction, um, there are there's there are two. Uh, actually, there's three. If you like humorous, um, I would recommend. Uh, oh God, 
Jimmy Crinklepot and the White Rebs of Hayberry. Um, and it's interesting because actually all three of these are, are kind of pseudo historical fiction. They're, they're all history fiction. Um, and that one is, it's a Christmas story uh, that Kevin Anderson, he was putting out volume two of his Christmas anthology years ago. And somebody had dropped out and he called me on like a Sunday night. I said, hey, Quincy, can you get me a story by Tuesday morning? I said, uh, okay, yeah, I can do that. Because he trains us to respond the way, yeah, I can do that. So I, I hammer this thing out and it just kind of poured out of me. So if you ever read Jimmy Crinklepot and the White Rebs of Hayberry, when you hear the judge talking, just imagine Foghorn Lane, Leghorn. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> um, and it's it, it's hysterical. I think it's really very funny. It's probably the funniest thing I've ever written. People hear it and they crack up. So it's not just me or my mother. Um, the other two... Uh, are kind of also of a similar bent, uh, same era, roughly. One is called uh, Family Heirloom, which is, it's actually uh, takes place um, just prior to or during the Civil War. And it's about an underwater railroad from Missouri up the Ohio River, uh, up into Ohio. And it's really from the perspective of this young girl who's listening to her uh, grandfather talk about why he goes to this one spot along the Ohio Riverbank every year. And, and it, it's, got, it's got a steampunk facet to it, a little diesel punk. I mean, it opens up with him taking her for a ride in this gyrocopter, and then they land in this old uh, field, farm field. And then they, he, he basically begins weeping by the bank of this river. And he, then he tells this story. Sorry, I get choked up because it's one of those stories. Anyway. And then the other one is called Salting Dogwood. And that is, um, it's based on three actual events in American history. It's from the perspective of, for the most part, of a, from a young girl who was a sharecropper's daughter. In 1908, uh, there is allegedly, not allegedly, I mean, it's, they say it was the largest mass hanging, mass lynching hmm. in American history. Uh, it, was, it was, I believe, eight guys were hanged in Hemp Hill, Texas for a murder that nobody knows who committed. It deals with the mass epidemic, uh, the flu epidemic of basically 1917. And then also with the um, uh, rape and subsequent murder of a white school teacher in Ohio who perpetrated by the, at that time, the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. And so it, it, that one deals with some pretty heavy subjects. Yeah. Um, and it is based on those three events. And what I do is I link them together in, in a paranormal setting. It's the spirit of this young girl who made a promise to her father. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I was, I've always been very proud of that story too, because of what it undertook. And I'd like to think I did a pretty good job with it. We'll see. Um, but that's the, the, those last two are heavier um, subject matter because, I mean, you also, if you want to just a, a fun kill everybody romp, actually chemical burn is a lot of fun. It is. I mean, it's, it's glorious mayhem. He, he kills everybody. In fact, so one of the early readers of that manuscript, uh, I was in a writing group at the time. She said she, one of the ladies in the group, it was like nine of the 10 really enjoyed it. It was funny. And, uh, okay. He kills everybody. I had one lady in the group, a little older, I'll say a little more conservative, who basically thought that Justin was a sociopath 
and he should be in jail. Now, while I couldn't necessarily argue with her, <laughs> it was it's like Punisher fun, but with more jokes than the Punisher because the Punisher is so serious and Justin. Right. So that's also a fun place to start, it, you know, but it also depends on your appetite, right? Because uh, if you want um, more of a fantasy thing, then the, the Justin, the sorry, the Jake Laster stuff is pretty good. So, but those are the, those are probably the three gateway short stories versus either action thriller or fantasy sci-fi. And you have done uh, a number of videos, some writing tips and some different things as far as, uh, you know, how to get started, how to do the, do the brand, how, how to manage yourself. And you talk about all of these indie, indie authors having these opportunities now to bring all of this stuff out there. And, and I mentioned at the top of the show that, you know, the whole thing going on with Gina Carano and, and social media in general. Let me ask you yeah. here, because you have, you have been in that world where you talk about managing your brand as an author. And you talk right. about the, you talk about the Mohawk and, and setting yourself aside and, and you're establishing a particular look and a particular tone for yourself as Quincy J. Allen author, you know, the use of cross genre as opposed to anything else. When you look at the landscape of social media now, yeah, which is, I know you, it's, it's almost like you need a gas mask just to go on social media, just to, just to, to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Is there, are there best practices that you think should be in place that maybe aren't? I mean, I see a lot of drama. I see a lot of junior high drama from people who are supposed to be professionals. Yeah. And you've, you've mentioned in a couple of videos, you know, your social media, if you're on a Facebook page, you're on a Facebook account or a Twitter, that's part of your brand. If you're an independent author, you're an independent creator of some sort, how how do you how do we get out of where we are now? Do you think, or so, do we? <laughs> uh, that's that's a big and that question is bigger than the publishing industry. But I'll try and keep yeah. it focused. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, on the grand scheme, I often joke, not quite joke, about the notion that this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a tweet. <laughs> and I think that that holds more truth now than it did certainly a year and three years and five years ago, right? Um, from a an authoring and even sort of business management perspective, mm -hmm. with some notable exceptions, it is prudent to avoid politics and and even I'll say controversial subjects in general because the response, especially now, um, and increasingly, exponentially increasing with the number of followers you have, is more risky, Yeah. right? And it's so easy to be taken out of context, to be misunderstood, to, to hit a trigger. I mean, you know, and this is not to condemn that notion or, I mean, without it, purely objection, objective. Triggers exist. And in this day and age, it is easier now to step on one than ever before, especially with social media, 
Doug, do I think that, I mean, so here's the thing. And I, if you're looking for a, a good rule, when I go out my front door, even if I wasn't an author, I pretty much treat people with respect, do my best not to be insulting, do my best to be cognizant of those around me, and generally try and be an okay guy. I mean, that's kind of how I live my life. Oh, it's just crazy talk, Quincy. I know, right? And I'm like, <laughs> so, you know, and, and here's the thing. It, it would be really easy for me to go out the front door and find certain groups of individuals and punch them in the throat. <laughs> but that is deleterious to a healthy society. And I'm a member of this society. I want to have a healthy society. I like to think we all do. How we define that, that's a different conversation, right? But, we, you know, I think everybody wants to get by, if not get along, right? I mean, I, yeah, I totally respect it. I just want to be left alone. I mean, I've been a recluse more often than not. Um, so I think that there is reason to be careful about how you comport yourself on social media, because ultimately the consequences, an offhand remark, a bad joke, the consequences can be severe. Right. And frankly, nobody gives a damn if you get hurt by it. That's just, look, that's it, the nature of the animal. And I, I think that's part of maybe part of the problem is the perception of consequences. I grew up understanding consequences. Um, that was imparted upon me in many respects because of my parentage. Uh, even in school, there were consequences for the most part if you did something inappropriate right and and you understood like okay if i do if x then y i mean there's this mathematical equation you can remember. and it seems like there's less of an understanding of that now and i think also there's this notion a growing notion of well i should be able to say whatever i want first amendment what well, yes and no right the first amendment protects your right to say whatever you want it does that's what it's there for pretty much but that doesn't mean that people have to be nice to you in the aftermath. Of it. Right. It's not an obligation. And so I think there's this, this disconnect there. And so in social media, and I, but I think we're also struggling with, particularly in our industry, the entertainment industry right now is fraught with, and, and Vicky and I were talking about this just last night, and it kind of has to do with what we saw with Black Panther, whatever I mentioned there, in that the, the animal is changing meaning the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. It is, for lack of a better word, and you know, and I could, if somebody wanted to take it offline and debate these notions, I'd be happy to, but for lack of a better word, it's evolving. There is, and look, culture does this from one decade to the next to the next. It always has, it always will. What is a perceived norm changes, right? And so what we're seeing is the norms are changing um, there are what some would describe as archaic mindsets that are being left behind, as they always have, right? I mean, to give you a perfect example that's more industrial than anything else, we used to have a whole bunch of, a whole industry of people who shoot horses in this country. They went the way of the dodo. Now, the people shooting, horse, shooting horses at the time didn't like that. Well, evolve or die, right? And so there's this, this, this delicate and dangerous balancing act we try and do i think as a society um to manage that and and not exclude and, and not right i mean for the most part 
Um, and, and I think that folks in the entertainment industry, some of them are sort of, some of the, we'll call them the, the subsets, are, have, have been emboldened to speak out about things that they, they think are unfair, right? I'm a huge fan of leveling the playing field across the board. I don't care who, what, where, when, why. A level playing field seems reasonable to me. There are people who disagree with that. Okay, that's, you know, entitled to, we're all entitled to an opinion. Um, but I think that there's, because of what we've seen on the big screens, what has become mainstream has, is growing a life of its own. And so I suspect we will see and hear more of that, more things that we'll call it the old guard for lack of a better phrase, find disquieting, find even offensive. And in some cases, sometimes maybe it is. Um, I'm reminded of, did you ever see a movie called The Power of One? No, I heard of it, but I haven't seen it. So the, so the, the actor who played Frost in Blade with Wesley Snipes, Right. It's okay. about a 16-year-old kid in South Africa. It deals with apartheid. Um, and Sir John Gielgud, may he rest in peace, he was marvelous. Anyway, he is this professor at a boarding school there. And this young man is, is getting caught up in um, what's going on in South Africa at the time. And he wants to change things. And he's very passionate about it. And... Um, He's, they're, they're talking about how history takes a while to change, right? It's that evolution, right? Right. That's natural. And, and the young man says, history takes too long. And Sir John Gielgud has this marvelous, patient, understanding, old man look on his face. And he says, yes, but it is unkind to those. And I think that that's... That's sort of what we're seeing in in the American entertainment industry across the board. Mm -hmm. Is there are people who are hurrying it, and there is a natural sort of people dig their heels in, and that's there's natural. I think there's there's this notion of the discourse that comes from that is worth our while, because things can fly to the left and the right, right. I mean, it's a tightrope act, and when the boat when the the rope starts swinging things get kind of out of hand and the safest places where that, that rope is barely moving. Right. Yeah. But sometimes it goes too far and it needs to be brought back in. And that's historically, it, it, it's just a pendulum, right? We talk about this pendulum and I think that, you know, and there, there are people now sort of, and I, I know I've digressed a bit, but you were talking about the notion of managing brand. I'll, and I'll use a perfect example of someone who, and I'm pretty sure that it's both, it, it's how he has used, um, for lack of a better phrase, controversial assertions. He's generally got his, his facts in a row, right? And we're, Larry Correa is a voice and he has, I mean, there's no mistaking that he comes from a certain perspective. Right. And it works because there are people who revile him, but there are people who, he has a voice that speaks to them. Um, and I say all of this without any kind of judgment at all. It's, and, I, and I, I see younger guys, primarily younger people who try and do that, try and kind of knock ideas out of the park. And I, I think the answer I generally have, because they usually, they usually get slapped down, is, well, 
when you're Larry Korea, you can do that. And he's you know, Larry's not the only one. I mean, um, uh, the oh God, what's his name? Then they used to, they used to butt heads. I don't know if they do anymore. Um, well, I see. Kind of, I see. Brad Torkerson does uh, does some stuff. I see David Bryn every now and again. will will post some things. And and yeah, Bryn Bryn, of course, being polar opposite in terms of of what he thinks is is right and true. They tend to, you know, I see a lot of complaints about Bryn's behavior online in response to some of this stuff. And, of course, you've got, you know, the people over at File 770 with Mike Glyer's group. And, yeah, you know, and this could go into all of the Hugo mess and the puppies and all of this <laughs> stuff. I mean, right. it's, it's almost at a point now where uh, even if you're in a position where you have facts to present to support your your side, it doesn't necessarily matter because there are a lot of people out there that are la, 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 neener, neener, neener. I don't, I'm not going to even listen. Correct. That's and, true. And, and just dogpile because I don't like what you're saying, so we're just going to, we're just going to blast you. And Correct. Or, or even have, a, like, you know, there's, there was the whole, and I know Larry got hit with it and a few others, that leaving the the bad reviews and stuff, right? Oh yeah, physical attacks, um, which I think are egregiously inappropriate. I haven't seen one that I didn't think was inappropriate. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I haven't seen. Yeah. I think that there's there is, and this is I mean this gets at the heart of well so as long as we're kind of going down this road. The reason I haven't written for two and a half months, which is killing me, is because not only it was work in the yard, you know, the deck and the everything was everything going on in the world right i mean you know you, you see i i've studied history i've seen some of these things before i mean and they're you know it, it's it's right there i mean all you got to do is open a couple of books that have been around for a hundred years or 70 years and it's right there and you see it and you see it happening again and that's i find that deeply troubling and I think that, you know, we, 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 everybody, everybody, I think this is universal. Everybody laments about the fourth estate and the state it's in. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know what the fourth estate is, um, I'd suggest you go to a civics class, take one, because there's the three branches of government plus the media, journalism. It was the fourth estate. Notion checks and balances. Anyway, I digress. So um, I, I think that. We've kind of, because of the media, we have been set at each other's throats and nobody's listening anymore. And that is about as dangerous a place to be in as a nation can be. Yeah. That, that's what, I mean, that's what literally, I wake up in the middle of the night worried about that, right? It eats at me. It's like, look, it, it doesn't need to be this way, right? There should be dialogue and discourse and an absence of insults and, and an, an awareness of, looking up data points and acknowledging them, right? Okay, that's a good point. People don't say that's a good point anymore. Not anymore. At least I don't hear it much. And I, again, right, it, it's, it's, I think that, and I'm not the only one. I've got a couple of buddies. I think it's affected a lot of people in this business, right? It, troubling times, unless you're actually writing novels that, if you're writing fiction that feeds off of troubled times, right? 
Um, I mean, so, you know, you've got 1984 was written in troubling times, I believe. I'd have to look this up. Somebody check my math on here, but I think that was written during the McCar during McCarthyism. Um, but I mean, if it wasn't, it could have been. Um, but the, the point is that if you're trying to write creative and stuff and fantastic stuff, yeah, it, there's a weight on our shoulders. In fact, I was halfway, I started and I was writing this blog about why I haven't written for three months. The only blog I probably would ever write like it that would go on my website. I haven't finished it yet, but it's, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm a, and this is to your question. I also think that there is this etiquette for the most part. Most of my author friends had not, had, um, acknowledge it. I mostly do um, is you don't delve into politics online. You don't get public about it. You don't because it can backfire. It, you'll lose half your audience is, is the understandable consequence. Right. And that's not wrong. But there's also this notion of, and it's what I struggle with, If I'm going to be silent, ultimately, if I'm not going to chime in to what I see as, in some cases, gross injustices, abuses of this and that, without getting into detail, am I not a party to the crime, right? And I think there's this, in America, and there will be people who perhaps disagree with this, but America historically has, in some cases, had this marvelous hubris about what could only just be described as sort of moral cowardice. What did it take to get us into World War II? Right? right. And, and, you know, now had, we had kind of learned that from the horrors of World War I, but even then we relate to that party. It's been easy for us to kind of stand back and, and, and so forth. That, that, and again, that's not a, a judgment per se. I mean, I guess it is. But we... I think that there's this tendency to turn a blind eye. Perhaps it's out of sake of, you know, this notion of respect, not wanting to get in somebody else's business. And, and I get that, right? But how do you balance that with, um, well, to use an example, child abuse, right? At what point do you step in when you see, right? And that there's this huge gray area and different answers and so many details. It's, these are impossible questions. And I think that that's part of it is we're struggling as a nation with these impossible questions, yeah. these impossible conundrums, and, and we're neck deep in them right now. Well, so, yeah. And you look at you look at how things are playing out and and you have movies like The Purge, for example, and you yeah. know, that that whole subset of stories. Uh, uh, sci fi snob says uh, theory is that sci fi reflects the times. Dystopia comes out in the troubled times, more optimistic stories, the optimistic times. I would I would wonder, though, because you have, you know, certain stories that are a product of their times. Are are we at a point now? And we've talked about this before in, in other shows and I've asked other people about this. The fact that science fiction just, you know, in the broad scope, speculative fiction has sort of kind of real life has has caught up almost in terms of technology, in terms of the kind of things that we're able to do with computers and AI. And and yeah. where do you go from here now that we've caught up with all, with all of this that we read about? I mean, we don't have our flying cars yet, but, you know, we've got jetpacks and you know, it's there. It's it's there. The prototypes are there. 
but then we we cycle back to things like the Hunger Games and these and and Divergent and these dystopian future stories that seem to just stick with us. Does does the speculative fiction fiction industry do authors who do that maybe have kind of an opportunity here? to start writing some stories to help kind of break that malaise and sit there and say, you know, it can get better. You know, where's the next Star Trek? Because Star Trek has even gotten a little bit nihilistic with stuff like Picard and, yeah. and Discovery. It's, it doesn't feel like Star Trek. Where's the optimism? Where's the hope? And I'm wondering if there's an opportunity here for, for, for science fiction and fantasy authors to step up and sit there and say, yes, we are in the middle of dark times, but as you're talking about, you know, you look back at history as a, a cyclical thing. Yeah. We are going to come out of this at some point. Here's what it could look like. Well, so I, I think that, yes, there is an opportunity here to address, to be more concrete in setting, I think set because when you think about it, yes, we've had the divergent and, and a lot of dystopian stuff, the purge, which I've never seen and I never will. That whole premise kind of I, well, anyway. Um, but then, if you, here's the thing that I think it's worth noting, and and I think that it, it both are a reflection of these times. This is also the golden age of superheroes. I think it's important that we ask ourselves why. I think that it's the same question as why we've seen so many dystopian things. Writers frequently, genre writers frequently, aside from just a nice romp through Fairland, sort of delve into one of two emotions, fear or hope, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's, and that's really the question you're asking. And I think that we, the reason, aside from some fantastic direction and writing and a big budget, and CGI. The reason Marvel has been so successful, and they have, right? Yeah. Multi-billion dollar industry is because in those movies, and you know, you have what, a, an 18 film epic saga that I'm in the middle of watching it again. And I do, I started the first one and moving it through. That literally does have clearly defined heroes, villains, and a victory for the good guys. Actually, a lot of little victories for the good guys. There's a couple of dark spots, just like in American sort of contemporary life. Um, I mean, you look at the end of Civil War. So I would, so as long as I have at least a few people listening, I would recommend that everybody, and if you can, watch everything up to it, but then sit down when you're very, very cognizant and watch Civil War. Because there is a lot going on in that movie that, if you're sharp, you will see may have reflections in what's been going on today. In the manipulation of perception. And that's what that movie is all about. How someone manipulated perception to, to essentially elicit predictive responses from certain archetypal personality types. That's what that movie is about. And if, if you have a chance, especially right now in September, watch that movie. And then, and then read the news for the past five years. 
it's it's it, it hit me because we watched it just uh, last week and i'm like it, it was this this illumination right right um i think that we we have it's happening as far as the both the dark and and the hope the hope is taking place not necessarily in the places that speculative fiction would normally find it um, I mean, we grew up seeing sort of, you know, the, the Asimovs, at least I did, so I'm an old guy, uh, Asimov and, and Heinlein and, and Clark, uh, who they wove in those notions of, okay, bad times and, and here's how we work our way out of it. Right now, and I think that maybe this, the success of the, the Marvel heroes is that none of us right now can really see a way out of it on our own. And what we what we don't have and what we desperately need are heroes. And forgive me, but I haven't seen one. Not in a long time. And I think that's also maybe a little troubling. We see shades of gray everywhere. We we when we, we all joke about you know the the lesser of evils. Yeah. We're supposed to be better than this, man. <laughs> Well, and I think too that you can always you can you can point back as far as you know the heroes and and Sci-Fi Snob points out there are dystopian superhero stories. You've got the boys, you've got Jupiter's Legacy, you've got you know different yeah. random pieces, and some different things that are coming up in the DC universe and and Marvel Max and whatnot. But you can point to certain places in the history of comics. You know, The Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen, Killing Joke. The places where, you know, dark and gritty became the norm. And I have made the point several in several conversations that Hollywood always learns the wrong lessons. And (laughs) (laughs) and we see this. I mean, you would think, you know, the the Marvel Universe almost uh, seems to be an exception in that they are still they are still doing comic book movies as opposed to movies based on comic books. And, and, and I have to wonder, you know, with some of the stories, like, like some of the stuff that you, that you write and, and, you know, you look at, you know, Larry's stuff, you look at, um, Kevin Anderson's stuff. Yeah. yeah there's, there's still, there's still pockets of stories that are not, dark and gritty type of, of story. Yeah. Maybe there's still some, some hope out there with some different authors. Are there any new young upcoming authors that you're keeping an eye on that you're noticing are, are telling those kinds of stories that you think are, you know, little candles in the dark? Honestly, it, so I have, I am a, some distance away from, the recreational reading that I used to do, um, which is, it, it makes me sad. I mean, I have a, a, an attic full of books that are my retirement and I have, um, there are things that I want to read. I mean, the last new author I read that I really got into, uh, what's his name? Um, he wrote about it. Oh, shoot. It'll come to me later on. Don't worry about it. Anyway, so I, I read a bunch of those. I'm sure that there's a fair amount out there. I haven't seen it. And I I do think that the industry is in some places caught up in kind of the the troubles and turmoil um, that we see. But 
Um, I mean, you know, you look at folks like, I mean, certainly, you know, you mentioned him, Larry, his stuff is, is about as unpolitical as it can, which is defined irony, yeah. right? Is, is, you know, he's, he's kind of neck deep in all these things, but his, his monster hunter series, aside from the second amendment, <laughs> um, which is really irrelevant in the story, there is absolutely, not that there's no politics in there. It's a mixed bag as far as characters. I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's a marvelous irony for those people who are kind of aware of it. Um, I think that I like to think that there's still a lot of writing going on, particularly with the independent market, such as it is. And it's, you know, said, I wish I could read more. I think that authors are when they can write are still writing what they want to write. Mm -hmm. Um, When you look at just the number of the avalanche of titles that hit Amazon every day, I suspect that there's uh, a body of both hope and dreary pain, you know, and fear. I, I don't know if that balance has shifted much. I think perhaps the, the the different a different question would be how much of it is being received, right? What are people feeding on? Sure. Right. What what's what is meeting the appetite? And really, you know, reading in some respects is our selection of reading is frequently a, a reflection of psychology, our, our own psychology. What's going to kind of get me by the day? What's going to interest me today? Well, okay, it's this. Is it hope? Is it fear? Is it? Well, it's like that. It's like that tale of the two wolves. Which one do you feed? Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, and that that occurred to me when I was I was talking before is that that has never been more true. I think in some respects is that it's we're being it is possible we are being forced to make that decision. Right. I mean, you look at, and this is now me stepping back kind of the universe at large, right. Is this moment in history. Yeah. You know, it's, there may come a moment when we are forced to stand up and be counted. Well, if you do that, where are you going to stand? What, what wolf are you going to feed? And I think that it's, you know, it's, and look, frankly, for the past 60 years, 50 years, this populist hasn't had to really think about that. I mean, and I think maybe in that, that respect, maybe that's part of the problem. Problem, uh, again, there's a judgment in there that may not be fair. That's part of the condition is that every, you know, our society had been, we had been sort of isolated top of the heap. Um, we were more concerned with, with microwave ovens and cable television and our new cars and stuff than we were much of anything else. Right, right or wrong doesn't fall into it. That's just sort of how the animal evolved. And so now we're 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 in a place that we're not accustomed to and, and forced to use a voice we haven't as a nation haven't used in a long time. Yeah. Right. It's and again, and that's that's what weighs on a lot of writers' minds, but I don't know if it changes what a writer writes. Maybe it does. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about the stuff I'm writing. Well, to a lesser extent, the novel I'm working on right now deals with sort of the, the notion of oligarchs and corporations subsuming government. Well, okay, that's a bit germane, um, right? I mean, that's kind of just, if we're not already there, it's certainly where we're headed. And, you know, it's there. there's a net, I think some logical conclusions you can derive from that. So am I delving into that in that regard? Yeah, but it's interesting because I, I thought come up with this notion, God, four or five years ago. Um, 
but even then, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe subconsciously it, it was because, you know, it's, it's, you go back to sort of even 2000 and you see this evolution. No, it doesn't say that it wasn't always there. Right. But it's been emboldened in some respects um, and snowballed, I think. Again, a point of discussion, sure. Uh, but I think maybe that has influenced why I want to get that book out and why I want to do that series, perhaps. So maybe at a subconscious level, yeah, it does influence us. Yeah. So and and that actually kind of kind of jumps into the to the last question I've got of what you're working on now. So I you just uh, recently got uh, Blood Wars Chronicle Volume One is out there. This was a, a post that you put on your site back in yeah. July. So what else is in the pipeline for you at the moment in terms of long fiction, short fiction, anthologies? At, at one okay. point, because we had talked at Worldcon that there was a possibility of some sort of a game tie-in or a, or a comic book, graphic novel type of project. Uh, for the Blood Wars stuff, yeah, that was um, Chris Ferguson. He's a great guy. He's, he's a game designer. He's done very well. He's in the Pacific Northwest. Smart. Actually, interestingly enough, he's one of the smartest guys I've, I've met. He's got a marvelous history. If you ever get a chance to sit down with Chris, look him up. I mean, as an interview, he might be willing. I don't know. Chris Ferguson. Anyway, so um, the game stuff kind of fell by the wayside because really I hadn't been as focused on the Blood War stuff. So I couldn't be as active in, in that participation and sort of mindset as I would have liked. Um, I will be writing, so I, I lost the two, almost three months this summer, which means that of the four books I wanted to write, I'm probably down to two by the end of the year. Um, and actually writing uh, Forging Destiny with Edelheit. Well, actually, that, that first draft took up really the first half of the year. So um, what I'm working on now is a book that I'm going to be submitting to Chris Kennedy Publishing that hopefully he will like enough to drop it in his machine. Uh, and that's Powered Armor and Psionics through the perspective of a 16-year-old girl um, who is kind of, uh, she's forced into a mercenary lifestyle to find the person responsible for familial deaths. I don't want to give too much details there. Anyway, so that's the next thing I'm working on. If I can get back, I used to write, I mean, when I was writing Forging Destiny, I was writing three to 6,000 words a day. Hmm. Well, I'd like to get back to that. And if I can get back to that, by end of year, I should have two or three books. Um, so the first one will be, it's called uh, Dorido Apprentice. Dorido is the name of the powered armor in this universe. It's actually derived from Japanese words that mean power and armor. Um, and then I am, after that, I'm going to write probably uh, with uh, Kevin Eikenberry, the sequel to Enforcer, okay. um, which that'll, that's in the Chris Kennedy Publishing House. Um, and, and so he hasn't actually, we were just talking about this a couple of weeks ago because of our, both of our years got away from us. We haven't really dug into, we know the title, we know the general storyline. It's called going to be called Scourge. Uh, and in that one, Herent, who is the, the, the figure in gumbo diplomacy and enforcer, he actually now has his first rookie to bring up and things kind of go sideways. Like they uh, do. Yeah, right. Um, so there's then I'm looking for because I, I love writing Herent. That character is just a blast. I mean, so for me, and I, I don't know if, how do I say this? There have been times in my past when I sort of engendered a reputation as being kind of an ogre, 
Um, right. It's the it's Mohawk. A, it's, it's, it's got, it's it is. Good, right. Yep. Um, yeah, but there, you know, it's, it, don't piss me off. Cause right, just don't do it. Anyway. So writing her rent, basically he's a nine foot tall murder bear with anger management issues who has been turned into a super soldier. Mm. So it's, if you cross Captain America with the Hulk, right. And Chewbacca, right. you get this guy who is, and then he becomes actually, he's, he's now in law enforcement. And so there are scenes in there where, you know, I, I really got to tap into that, the fury that, you know, that I always keep bottled up. And I, you know, when I was younger, it was harder for me to keep an even keel. I have matured since then, but when I need to, I can tap into that. I mean, there's a scene in that book where he literally rips a werewolf's head off. Yeah. And I loved writing it. Um, it's a lot of fun. So anyway, so in, the Scourge will come out. Um, and then I'm going to be writing. So in one of the Chris Kennedy anthologies, uh, it's called We Dare. I wrote a story about she's a geneticist who has literally brought into existence um, by manipulating DNA, three different genomes of sentient sort of bipedal animals, uh, rhinoceros, canine, and feline. feline, feline. And, but she, so she's also a, an idealist and she used, she made a deal with the devil with this corporation that wants to own these and turn them into slaves, uh, these three races. And she always considered them her children and so she basically comes up with a plan to free her children from slave owners. And so the plan at this point, because that story was fairly well received, uh, what I'm going to do is take that novelette, and it was actually about 14,000 words, I'm going to turn that into a full-length novel, because there's a lot of backstory, a lot of politics and stuff I dealt with in an original draft and an outline that I just couldn't get to in a, a long, short story. Right. So I'm going to write that for Jamie Ibsen, and that'll be in this, the CKP, actually part of Ibsen's new IP under Chris Kim Publishing. So that's coming. Um, I also am going to be writing book four of the Blood War Chronicles. Uh, that is called, so I've got to run through this in my head. We have Blood Ties, Blood Curse, Blood Oath, Blood World will be next. And this is where, so sort of pseudo spoiler alert, this is where Jake gets to meet so but essentially he meets the high vampires and he finds out really why things happened with lady Karina and Vlad the impaler and who and what he really is. Uh, so that's, that comes out in book four. And then after that, the, the third volume, like it would be in an epic volume is the culmination of the demon war and wrapping it up. So, and then when I release book four, I'll do volume two, which will be the combined books. One and two. Right. Our book's actually three and four, keeping track of the numbers. I actually had to write that in a paragraph and I kept screwing it up. <laughs> like the book description is like, wait a minute, I'm volume one and book three and what does it carry the two? I lost track. <laughs> anyway, um, so that'll happen. Um, and then I do, let me see here. Oh, and then and uh, Steverson is, uh, Kevin Steverson over at CKP. In his salvage title universe, I wrote a story for him called Vorwall Dishonor which deals with a race of dragonkin in his universe. Um, and there, it's actually, it's, a, it's about a football team or the equivalent of a football team. And they have to go, actually, they have to go kill their brother. The owners of the team have to go kill their brother because he's dishonored them. 
And that turns into, they turn into a mercenary band. I've written another short story about that. I'm going to write a novel about their first mercenary contract in Kevin Steverson's year. So I'm, right now I'm pretty committed to um, writing in this Chris Kennedy publishing environment. Right. And then when that's all done, actually along the way, I will write an outline for book three with Adelheit. Um, and I think that one's going to be Ascending Glory is a working title. Okay. And so right now it'll be, it's going to, it's being written as a trilogy so that there's this culmination. Um, if, any, if anybody's read the, essentially the, the Dverger, the dwarves, they find what they're looking for. In book two, they kind of, they discover exactly what it really is. And in book three, they kind of, they get the keys. and they, you know. um, So th that will, needs to be outlined so that I can start writing that next year. And that pretty much will be my writing docket. Now I, I am committed to two short stories with Chris Kennedy anthologies as well. Um, let's see here, a fantasy story dealing with uh, the character that came out in the first fantasy anthology, Relin of Corsia. Um, and that's when basically, so Relin is a kind of a, he's a traveling fantasy version of a private detective of sorts. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some Witcher parallels, you know, I'll, I'll own that. I mean, I'd, I'd be a fool to say there wasn't, I just kind of like that trope. And so I wanted to play with it. So that story is going to come out. And then I am going to be writing another one uh, that will probably deal with um, that geneticist and or one of the uh, groups of the, the races, probably feline, because we've got three cats. We just got three cats, three kittens. <laughs> and what I may do is have the three of them manifest in a story. Uh, that's actually not a bad idea. That just occurred to me. So you, you just witnessed history. Um, I think that that's what I'm going to do is those three. I will, so anyway, that's my writing schedule. I will have to send you a link uh, to a short film that I made that incorporated my cats. Uh, where we talk about um, alien invasions. So it's something that that ran on the Sci-Fi Channel way back in the day. So <laughs> because cats are aliens, they right. are. Right. And well, I, well, they're they're not only are they aliens, they have one foot in the real world and one foot in another dimension all the time. Yep. Right, is they're 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 transdimensional travelers. I love them. <laughs> and uh, for anybody that wants to keep track of where things are going, uh, you've got your blog over on your website, quincyallen.com. Uh, you are also uh, on Twitter. And yeah, I don't hit Twitter too often, just so you know. But but it's, stuff gets posted there. Yeah, and then you've got a YouTube channel here, but you haven't got anything posted <laughs> since what? <laughs> four years ago. So, so I'm, yeah, the, I'm guessing the website is probably the best place for people to know what's going on the latest for you. Yeah. Website or Facebook. <laughs> so, and I have both a personal page and an author page under Facebook. Um, I think it's, it's like Quincy J Allen and then Quincy Allen author. You'll, you'll find them. You can't miss the, the, yep. the headshot. Um, but those, and if you want to reach out to me, right. I, I take per, you know, private messages from folks all the time, not all the time, but, yeah, and I do intend, I'm going to go back to the, the dialogue. It looks like it's really small print on my laptop here. looks like there were questions there. I was not ignoring you. I will try and go back if I can and, and answer them. Or if you have a question for me, hit me up on Facebook, by all means. Uh, I'm always open, and I'll talk about just about anything, right? You know, it's sometimes you walk on eggs, but I think discourse is important. Yeah. More important than ever in some respect. Um, so I'm game. So, yeah, those that's where to find me. 
All right. So we will let you get back to your uh, writing schedule there. And uh, for those of you who are uh, interested, uh, we do have a discount code negotiated over at SuperheroStuff.com. And we'll just do a little plug here real quick. Use the promo code SciFi for me 10 You get a discount of 10% on your order. Can be sometimes used in combination with other offers. And coming up tonight on uh, this channel, on on, uh, on Sci-Fi For Me TV, we do have a brand new uh, Tribble Bites with the latest news about Star Trek and the Orville that's coming up at 9 p.m. Oh. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. And then tomorrow we're back here for more conversation and interviews. Uh, I believe Mark Walters is up next to talk about conventions and the impact that everything has had here. And uh, from there, who knows? Everything else will go kind of crazy. So Quincy J. Allen, thank you very much for joining us today, thank sir. You. But thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And we do thank everybody who has been watching here. And of course, as uh, as always, if you want to send us your feedback, you can send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. Uh, Robert in the chat, Meg is, is no longer with us. She's had some, some job priorities that have taken, uh, taken precedent. So I'm hosting triple bites, at least for the duration. So, you know, you're stuck with me on another show. Uh, but yeah, let's, uh, we will regroup and, uh, thank everybody for watching on this one. And we will be back with more tomorrow live from the bunker. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.